Let's pray. Lord, again, as we look into your word, Lord, we just ask your Holy Spirit to help us to understand it, Lord. Lord, we ask you to show specific things to us that we have not seen before that, uh, Lord, we can give to you to change so that we can please you and obey you. And we ask your Holy Spirit's help in this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I looked into the lectionary readings for this week and found the epistle reading from Ephesians 5, I thought I'd have a go at it, especially since I was meeting with two couples who are planning to wed in the coming months. The epistle reading was the one expounded at my wedding and Maria's wedding many years ago. Um, but I don't think I absorbed all that much from the sermon that day. I'd love to listen to what our minister had to say, but I've only got it on VHS video and I don't have a player. So I'll just have a go at it myself today. The reading today begins with Paul telling us to consider carefully how we live. Not to live as unwise, but as wise. What is it to be wise by Paul's definition? Well, Paul tells us in verse 17, being wise for a Christian is understanding what the Lord's will is. So if we consider carefully how we live and understand what the Lord's will is, we should be off to a good start and be in a very good position. But there's obviously obeying God's will too. If we love the Lord, we want to please him and we should be happy to obey his will even when he tells us things to do that are difficult for us. If we understand the Lord's will and disobey it, it would, be, it would have been better if we had not understood it in the first place. Now, once knowing and obeying the Lord's will is established by Paul, he, he goes on to tell us what not to do. He says, do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery. And then he tells us what, what else to do, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. He plays these two opposites off one another. But being filled with the Holy Spirit is not so easy. Of course, it's God who fills us with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I wish I could just fill myself, pour down the Holy Spirit into myself, drink up all of God's goodness and instruction and power, but that's not how it works with God. We aren't even filled by drinking in, but by pouring out, pouring out of ourselves, pouring out psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, Paul says, and singing and making music in your hearts to the Lord. Verse, I'll continue with verse 20. Always giving thanks, always giving thanks to the Father for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Then, then you have to try that. Try pouring out good. Try speaking to others, good inspired words of God, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Of course, to do that, to be able to do that, you have to take 
those things in yourself first. You have to read the Bible and meditate on it. And what A.W. Tozer used to say too is the next best thing to reading the Bible is reading a hymnal, a hymn book. And it's true, there are great truths straight from the Bible in those old hymns, which um, when they are put to music, helps us remember them. And it's good to listen to contemporary worship music too, to put that praise to God into our hearts. If you put good things in, good will come out. And on the other hand, if you put garbage in, garbage will come out. We can expect that. You know, I'm like our brother Kaharn. I, I like karaoke and I have lots of fun singing sometimes, mostly when I have been under stress and I have to release some, some energy. And unfortunately, most of the songs that I know best come from a time when I wasn't following the Lord and, and loved listening to good rock and roll. And of course, that doesn't edify those around me. In fact, it perturbs my family to quite a degree when I do it. The doors get shut. Maria goes out to her garden. But wouldn't it be great if someone would write some new melodies to, this, to these uh, old psalms for me and make some karaoke tracks that I could sing along with so I could sing and make music in my heart to the Lord. It wouldn't matter then if everybody else left. You know, I'd be doing it to the Lord. In our Westcliff rectory, I had a, a sound system in the kitchen and I used to sing along with, with the Christian rock band Third Day as I was uh, doing the dishes before the kids took over uh, my part of the dish chores. And, and that felt good. Singing and giving thanks to God is always good and oh so important. When we stop thanking God, we tend to forget what he has done for us. So make thanksgiving a habit. Reminisce about what God has done for you and thank him for it often. Look back at your life and see where he has brought you now and thank him for what he has done. Now there is more than that to be filled with the Holy Spirit, of course. The passage goes on. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we might say, oh, that's, that's a bit harder than the other, submitting to one another. What does it mean to submit? Well, it can mean a few different things, so we have to be careful here when we look at this passage. Submitting can mean simply to give up. But as far as I see it, in this context, it does not mean that. Giving up is not good in life. It's not healthy, and it can also foster abuse. Yes, in the case that you are wronged by fellow Christians, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that it's better to suffer wrong than to take them to secular court. And in one sense, you might say that's giving up. But in another sense, if you are trusting God for justice while being wronged out of reverence to him, it's not giving up. In that case, you know he will reward you for obeying him and not for fighting for your own rights. Still, I don't think that's what Paul is speaking about in this passage in Ephesians. Rather, he's speaking about yielding to the authority of another. Now we all know what 
yielding to authority is. God put it in our DNA. We are born, of course, helpless little babies with someone who is fully developed being responsible for our care. Best case scenario, it's a, a team, our parents, one who provides and the other who nurtures. But both who have been in the world longer than we have been and both who have been experienced uh, in the things that we have not been when we, when we are a baby. And these parents guide and protect us and they have authority over us while we are under their care. We submit to their wishes willingly or unwillingly sometimes, but we submit. And as we grow, we begin taking on responsibility for ourselves. And we also start making our own independent choices and, and we become responsible for them. But as long as we are under our parents' care, we must submit to their authority. Now we also know that's how governments work to some extent. Whether it was lords and serfs or kings and subjects in, in the old days or, or whether it's our present systems of government. As long as we are under the care of our nation and their protection, we are under their authority. Uh, hopefully citizens have um, their country's protection and we know in all places in the world this is not true but if yes we live under our country's rule of law we submit to its system of government its system of authority and its officers that's what law and order is if you don't like it or if you don't benefit from its pro protection well, it's best to leave and move someplace else and come under some other country's protection and rule of law. And the problem, of course, is everyone is not free to move to whichever country they like best. So if, it's that, if that's the case and you can't move, well, then you better get involved in your country's politics in one way or another. That just makes sense. And if you want, you can talk to Suzanne about that. As biblical Christians, we need to take yielding to authority a step further, to husband and wife, as the Apostle Paul does here in Ephesians 5, and with regard to the church as well. Authority is Christ's first, both in the church and in the marriage. And following Christ's words, and example as authority trickles down through the husband or pastor it is not something to be lorded over those who are under it christ set up the order and christ set the example and those in authority under him are to govern in a serving way a serving attitude like a king who serves his subjects protecting them it's a balance between what he provides and what he returns, what, what he receives. To wives, Paul says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. In all cases, however, submitting to one another is out of reverence 
for Christ. That's what scripture says. How is that? Well, sometimes we feel that we cannot uh, submit to those in authority with respect because in our eyes, they're not acting worthy of it. Take our current government, for example. But we can submit out of reverence for Christ who set up the system of authority and respectfully point out what is offending God in what they are doing, even being prophetic in times. We can submit to the extent that we do not break God's law, God's laws, uh, forced abortion in China, for, for example. Now again, in the case of the husband and wife, it is not the authority ruling the other, Christ is the one who rules, but rather it is governing and sometimes it comes down to the one who is ultimately responsible to make a final decision, which the Bible tells us is the husband. And it gets complicated when our secular government uh, comes in and shows that we are uh, equal partners as far as decision-making goes as in a business partnership or something rather than as in a company with a CEO because equal partners of course can walk at any time if they agree if they disagree strongly with one another and that's not so in marriage as the two the Bible says have become one flesh so it's one corporation if you will with a sort of CEO and like CEOs, the best husband doesn't micromanage everything, at least if he knows what's best. If the wife has more skill than him in certain areas or more time to manage certain things, the husband should give that authority over to her to do the job. Any good CEO would do that. You delegate. And once he has, of course, he should stay out of it unless he wants some trouble. You know, if a husband gave authority over the, over the finances to, to the wife, well, don't be critical of how she spends. If the husband gave authority over the physical nourishment of the family to the wife, don't critique her cooking. Let her exercise her authority. You see, I've learned something uh, in my life. Submit, Paul says, because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. So the husband in the home is to be regarded as the savior or protector of the wife in, in a physical way, just as Jesus is the savior or protector in a spiritual way of those who are in his church. It's the husband's duty to protect his wife and his children. Guess whose responsibility it was before him, or should have been anyway. That responsibility was her father's. And the husband took on that responsibility when he married the father's daughter. I usually use the analogy of the OVA that Slavic females have at the end of their family names that males do not have. The OVA or OVA means belonging to that family, not as a possession, rather 
belonging to their care now, as she took her husband's name. And so, and in so doing, she came, comes under her husband's care and authority. Now, he must do his job and give to her all the temporal security that she needs. Verse 24, but as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Again, that doesn't mean that the husband should micromanage everything, but it means that he is ultimately responsible for everything and therefore needs to be respected in light of his duty at least. And giving respect, I think, is, is the easier part of the two, though it's not easy, I realize. It is not easy to respect someone, especially when they are using poor judgment and making mistakes that cost you. What do you do in those cases? Well, we will look at that, but, but first I want to say it's still harder to, to do the part of the husband. The harder part comes next. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Well, we all know how Christ gave himself and keeps giving himself for his church. And we can ask, to ourselves, ask ourselves, who in the world can do that? Who can love in the way that Christ did, giving his all? Well, that, my friend, is exactly why we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, because then it's his love, because otherwise it is impossible. And the wife might add, it's impossible to respect a man who is not worthy. And that is true. And that's why she needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit as well. Paul goes on to show why Christ did what he did for us, why he gave of himself to the church as he did after he gave himself to the world. He gave himself to us to sanctify, to the church to sanctify her by cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word so that he may present the church to himself as glorious, not having a stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. All that Christ did was done to make us gloriously presentable to himself. And Paul says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and takes care of it, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. Well, many people believe that most females back when Paul wrote this were unschooled and illiterate perhaps, and, and that could be true. And, but they say, therefore, the responsibility uh, for the wife's spiritual training um, fell on the husband then, but it is not so now. But no, that doesn't excuse excuse the modern day husbands from, from their duty here. It's for our own good that we work through the scriptures, through the word of God and learn along with our wives. As you know, 
I also depend heavily on Oswald Chambers and um, Adrian Rogers uh, uh, to to help in in such a thing because they do a much better job than I do in a lot of areas of scripture. But I'm very blessed to have a time in God's word and a time in prayer each morning with my wonderful wife. And it's no wonder that we are growing closer together every day. It hasn't always been like that, believe me, and I'll share a little bit uh, with you about that. Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's a quote, of course, from Genesis 2.24 that Jesus also used. And the Greek actually says the two shall be as one flesh, but uh, that was, of course, was translated from the Hebrew, which is very close to what I read. And Paul goes on, this mystery is great, but I am actually speaking with reference to Christ and the church. In other words, if you think that marriage is a mystery, and it is, well, so much more our relationship uh, to Christ as the church. Um, then Paul finishes with, with this, with verse 33. Nevertheless, each one of you, speaking to husbands, must also love his own wife as he loves himself. In other words, never put yourself before your wife. And the wife must respect her husband. Well, I never understood the significance of that verse. Verse 33, not until just over six years ago. Today, my wife and I have had 26 wonderful years together as a married couple and two really, really bad ones. Well, that's not original. I got that uh, from a minister that I used to work under, but guess what? It's so true. The first bad year came early on in our marriage before we had children and it grew out of financial stress. You see, before I met Maria, I kind of semi-retired after selling my dairy business in New York State. I still sold some farm products and, and I drove a, a truck, but that was all seasonal work. So I was volunteering for a Christian organization most of the year. And as a single guy, I didn't need all that much to live on. And I was still receiving installments from the sale of my old business over a period of five years. Well that five-year period ended right about the time that Maria and I were married. And the money was running out very quickly. And I had no French and no university education and I was living up here in Quebec where you needed a union card to do any of the jobs that I was experienced in and, and which you couldn't get in the recession. And Maria, well, she had been university educated and she was educated as an electrical engineer and at that time there was a great demand for electrical engineers especially women engineers so it was it became obvious to me what had to happen maria had to go to work to support herself and to supplement my semi-retirement well, needless to say, 
that wasn't so obvious to her. In fact, she refused. She refused saying she gave up that field of work to serve the Lord and she was not going back. That was our first big crisis. Who was right? Neither one of us. And we didn't seek God in that and that's the tragedy. Well, I tried to do what I knew best again. I went back into farming full time, but I had to borrow a lot of money to rebuild uh, our small house and to put our barn and our land into production. And not only that, we had to work from dawn to dusk, seven days a week. No church on Sunday, no fellowship with other Christians, no time to nurture our spiritual lives together. And before long, we were blaming one another for our lack of finances and for all the other problems in our life. And our relationship began deteriorating to the point that the D word was mentioned. I was not loving her, she was not respecting me. God, however, had mercy on us and he intervened, first through a pastor getting us back into fellowship and then giving us a baby that actually forced me to go to work in the USA, starting a new business there. And it was hard and I had to be away from the family a lot and Maria had to look after the farm by herself. But at least more money began coming in so that the financial stress was relieved a bit. And we got back into Christian fellowship and got back into Christian habits against, again, which were helping us along. But we had no idea that something worse than our original financial stress was coming along with a second child being born. Our second child was born with a heart defect that caused me to be put out of business permanently. The difference this time was it was completely impossible for us alone to cope with what came upon us. We had to depend completely on God. Out of a job and running out of money with an ill child and a wife that didn't drive. I had to deal with it. We had, I had to be at the hospital many times a week and, and I started to show signs of depression in all this. And then the Lord made it more interesting. He made it clear to me that he wanted me to go to university to study for the ministry. Well, this time the option of Maria working was not even on the table with yet a third child. But this time we knew that what the Lord's will was. And we were willing to obey it. And we were also in fellowship with other believers and that made all the difference. God, not me or Maria, had to make it happen. And happen it did. We had to borrow again but God provided as well, and we paid off our student loan within two years of my graduating. After that, I thought 
we would never have marital uh, trouble again because we had no debt any longer, but I was wrong. We hadn't learned the lesson of Ephesians 5.33 yet. When we had to leave our church and our rectory and move back to our two-bedroom house with four kids now, I had determined not to go into debt again because I had identified debt as the cause of our marital difficulty, so I was avoiding it like the plague. In reality, that had only been the flashpoint. But with that thinking, to save labor costs, I decided to build the much needed addition on our house, mostly on my own. Well, I lacked both skill and time, as I had a full-time job, and not getting the addition done became the flashpoint between my wife and I at that time. That year we had stress in our marriage like we had never had before, working and building at the same time with four little kids at our heels and, and getting nowhere fast. We were going down. We never considered or mentioned divorce that time around, but we did consider living in different spaces. And that time round, I was also a pastor. So after a while, I felt I had to meet with the church board and confess my sin, confess my issue, especially my anger at my wife that was ongoing and relentless. Realizing that I was in no position to lead a flock any longer with those issues. Well, to my surprise, they simply prayed for me. And God answered. A short time later, a Christian neighbor couple of ours asked us if we would like to do a marriage course from the biblical principles of verse 33 of Ephesians 5. Well, we did that course with them and God healed our marriage completely. And many years later, it's never been better. You see, we discovered from verse 33 that a marriage needs more than love. It needs respect. And there's a connection between love and respect which brings unity in a marriage. Wives need love first. Husbands need respect first. And husbands need respect just as much as the wife needs love. In fact, respect is interpreted by the husband as love in the same way that kindness is interpreted as love by the wife. When a husband does not feel respected, it's hard for him to love his wife. And so the commandment of God, love her anyway. Love her as I love the world that does not respect me. If love came naturally in that situation, it wouldn't have to be commanded by God. But if the husband truly loves God, he will obey God's command that has nothing to do with how he feels toward his wife at the time. How do you love someone who you don't feel love for? Well, you act kindly toward them. You do something nice for them 
probably when they're not present at first, without expecting anything in return. When you put out in obedience to God what is not in you naturally, God fills you with his Holy Spirit to do what you cannot do on your own. When a wife does not feel loved by her husband, it's naturally hard for her to respect him. And so the commandment of God, respect him anyhow. How do you respect someone that you have no respect for? You act kindly toward them. You do something nice for them without expecting anything in return. You do that because you love God and that's what God commands. It has nothing to do with your feelings. When you put out in obedience to God what you don't have in you naturally, that's when God fills you with his Holy Spirit to do what you cannot do yourself. Well, before understanding and doing that, because of the stress and poor communication and understanding between my wife and I, we would often get into what the author of that course calls the crazy cycle. Without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, respect he reacts without love. And it goes round and round and round. But after we forgave one another and learned how to love and respect, how love and respect play off of each other, then we began what the author calls the energizing cycle. With love comes respect. With respect comes love. And that goes round and round instead. And that is what Ephesians 5.33 is all about. Love and respect and how they go together in a, mar in a marriage. And that's the name of the course, Love and Respect. Well, let's pray. That's plenty of information today. Let's, let's pray together, shall we? Lord God, we do thank you that you redeem, Lord. Lord, we know this, this life is hard, and Lord, we know we are fallen creatures that need redemption, Lord, and we also, to love one another, need your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we just ask that we would take what we learn through your word today, Lord, to give what we do not have, both to you and to one another, so that you can fill us with what you have. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.